Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. This week's episode was the second live webinar from the Rob's Reliability Project series that's going on every week right now. So if you want to get in on those webinars, as long as we're still on lockdown, they're going to be running. Go to robsreliability.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll be notified of those newsletters. Now, on this week's episode, this week's panel, we're a great group of guests. We had our expert panelists that included Joe Anderson from Reliability X, Fred Schenkelberg from AscendoReliability.com, James Novak from Fix Software, Adrian Messer from UE Systems, and Andy Gailey from Uptime Consulting. We had a great group of guests. We had a great panel. We took some questions from the audience. And overall, it was a great webinar. So I really hope you guys enjoy that. And I really hope that you're joining me on some of the upcoming ones. Now, on that note, we've sort of switched here at Rob's Reliability Project. We sort of switched to this webinar slash podcast series while we're on lockdown during this pandemic. So with that, I'm offering some new advertising packages. So if your company sells products or services to engaged maintenance and reliability professionals, tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project they can send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or hit me up on LinkedIn to learn more about those packages. So I hope you definitely do that. Definitely, if you're out there and you're listening, I really hope you and your family stay safe, both physically and mentally. I know it's been a real challenge on me from the mental health perspective. This lockdown has really been hard on me, and I've really been doubling down on my self-care. So definitely lean into that if you are feeling that stress or you're feeling that fear or you're feeling that uncertainty. Definitely let it lean into that. And If you need any tips or anything like that, just hit me up, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. I'm happy to share what I'm doing with you. So on that note, I really appreciate you listening. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was a fun one to be a part of, so I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to the second, the second inaugural COVID-19 lockdown webinar. Um, The next one obviously is going to be on Monday with my leadership and performance coach, Susan Hobson. But today we got some special guests. Obviously, I'm Rob Kalvaroski, host of Rob's Reliability Project. We have Adrian Messer from UE Systems. We have Andy Gailey from Uptime Consulting. We have Fred Schenkelberg from Ascendo Reliability. We have Joe Anderson from Reliability X. And we have James Novax from Fix Software. So first off, guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So the first question we got submitted for us. With the COVID-19 crisis, the general view is if production has to stop, so does maintenance. While keeping workers safe, how can we convince decision makers that this is an opportune time to tune up or fix our equipment? Joe, do you want to give us your take on this one? Uh, sure. Um, 
well actually this is i would say two pieces um one is of course the safety of employees and keeping them safe the great thing about not having production employees um, and very few maintenance is you can assign maintenance mechanics to a specific area and uh, keep them you know within that area so uh, they can stay up with guidelines for social distancing those types of things so from a health and safety perspective um, it'd be very easy on the other hand um, if we could convince people to do maintenance we'd be doing it all the time not just during the <laughs> shutdown so so uh, um, but it is a, a good time to take advantage of it um, and, and of course it's industry specific so for example most of my line of work is in food manufacturing uh, food manufacturing cells are going through the roof because grocery store shelves are empty. Um, so right now is not a good time for them to shut down the plant um, due to demand. So, um, but if you're say a wood maker or something like that, I could see um, now would be a good time to take advantage of, you know, the, the time you have to do maintenance as far as convincing people um, that's based on the business case that you can put together um and what the return on investment's going to be so and and it has a lot to do with your credibility already um if uh you've been doing pms forever and your machines are still failing your credibility is probably fairly low so it makes it more difficult to convince people um for you to do maintenance whereas if your credibility is high and you say look these are the things that we have to do uh, makes it fairly easier for them to invest in you. So um, there's a lot of variables there. And again, if we all knew those answers, I guess uh, we'd be doing maintenance all the time, right? <laughs> now, Andy, do you have a, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, I agree obviously with a lot of what Joe says there. Um, my, my major clients are in automotive and in food. Food sales in the UK, as well as the rest of the world, seem to have gone through the roof because of um, people emptying the pipeline. So food manufacturers are, are actually at their probably busiest. Um, I heard a report the other day that um, major supermarkets here and in the US have already fulfilled their 2020 figures um, for their sales. So somebody's, um, somebody's already bought all of 2020's product. Um, the watch out for food manufacturers is when we do come out of this um, crisis, um, they're going to maybe have some slack time. So if the pipeline gets filled and then there's no customer, you're going to have uh, warehouses and logistics full of product that there's no purchase for. In the automotive sector, um, one of my majors is Nissan uh, here in the UK. They've um, obviously closed down their facility over a week ago. Uh, I think they're on a three to four week shutdown. I have heard that there's um, skeleton maintenance crews are retained and they're coming up with a schedule of going in and cycling equipment because uh, once you start shutting down an automotive manufacturer, if you leave those drop lifters unattended and the transfer lines, um, uh, you don't mothball them properly, and you're going to have big problems. Um, uh, I think they've kind of brought forward that what would have been their Easter shut down forward and doubled it. 
Um, if this goes beyond four to six weeks, then they are going to have to go into some sort of mothballing stage. And I was only talking to somebody that's down the phone, actually thinking about that scenario. What do we do if we need to put our plant aside for six months? I know it's a, it's a really, really mind-blowing thing to think about, but that could be the scenario. Yeah, and I think that that's something, like I come from mining and, you know, boom and bust time in mining is very typical. And that's something I've seen numerous times is these these sites get shut down or they park, you know, haul trucks or whatever, and they leave them out there and they forget about them. And then when it's boom time, they go back out there to start it up and it's multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them rolling. And I kind of liken it to your car, right? Like we would never yeah. park our car outside for six months and do nothing and then hope to turn the key and hope it would work. And so I just caution people, if anyone's on this call and you're on these times where you're shutting down or you're reducing production, don't forget about your equipment that is not running. Fire it up every once in a while. You're still going to want to lubricate it. You're still going to want to turn shafts. There's stuff that you got to do. So next question we got, what are the most important steps the company can take at the moment to ensure that their assets don't let them down? Fred, do you want to kick us off on this question? Well, I was great with this question, uh, Rob, and except for the phrase at the moment, because the best <laughs> thing they could have done was, you know, three years ago, <laughs> you know, as Joe mentioned right off the start, it should have been taking care of their equipment all the way along. Well, you know the expression, Fred, if you didn't, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago, but if not, it's today. So it's today. That's right. It's today. So I think it breaks down in a couple of ways. And I think the, what Joe and, and Andy talked about is, you know, exercise the equipment, uh, treat it well. If you have to mothball it, do it properly, things like that. That's all relevant right now. If you're in full up production, you're just putting out fires, right? It, it's do the best you can and keep moving. The for the folks that are, are away, and I'm talking more about the reliability engineers at this moment, they're, they're working from home. Hey, they got the time now to, to work through that data set and figure out what's relevant, what's not, what are the trends, what are our bad actors. Let's get on a Skype call and with your key folks and say, hey, what's our criticality and how's that changed and what do we need to focus on when we get back? So even though you're not in the plant, uh, I think the engineering teams certainly can take that time to do a, a lot of the work while they should have done 10 years ago with that tree. <laughs> Adrian, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, kind of Joe's sentiments too, that if it was this easy to promote maintenance in a pandemic as it was in you know normal operating environments, I, you know, we'd all be sitting on a beach, Rob. But, um, <laughs> you know, for me, you know, I, I kind of always think about things from the perspective of a condition monitoring solution provider. So um, for me, it always goes back to reporting and documentation. So hopefully plants are making use now more than ever before of their condition monitoring data uh, to make calls on what specific problems may be out there in the plant. Uh, you know, we talk about some of these plants, you know, scheduling shutdowns. You know, we have uh, BMW right up the road from me, uh, about an hour up the road. You know, they announced they're going to start a two or three week shutdown here. Supposed to have started April 3rd, but they actually uh, did that earlier. But, 
you know, you think about, you know, things are still going to run, you know, critical equipment, air, air handler units, you know, chillers, refrigeration systems and whatnot. So, you know, again, hopefully they are making good use of their condition monitoring data to know what problems are out there. Um, and, you know, again, also kind of making that business case as to if maintenance is required during these shutdowns to say, okay, you know, here are our problems, you know, here's what we're going to fix. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how much time it's going to take. And, you know, that good condition monitoring data, you know, documentation is kind of what kind of helps to make that case. Absolutely. And then it's like that time, right? Like if we're not in the office, maybe we have IAOT solutions or we have some sensors we can hook up. It's going to help us through these times if we're not able to actually go out and do routes, but hopefully, hopefully we can get back out there soon. Yeah. So this one, this one's a tough one. So the question came in, what are the foundational prerequisites to leveraging technology in MNR? So James, I wanted to throw this one to you because you're the, you're the tech guy on this panel. Yeah, Rob. Yeah. So you gave me the tough one. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, you know, way we think about it is um, it's kind of in the terms of a digital journey, right? Like, so a lot of organizations are just at the very beginning of their digital journey. Like, so in context, we have like over 3000 companies on our platform. So we just get a wide swath of a view of like what the market's doing. And uh, we see over 80% of uh, organizations coming to our platform from like paper or pen or Excel spreadsheets, which I'm sure is pretty common um, across the board. And, and organizations have been working that way for years. So first thing I think it's important to recognize that the majority of the industry is actually here um, in, in terms of just where they're starting their digital journey. The good news is though that, and I heard Andy kind of talking about this at the beginning around um, some of the investments that you needed to make to get started. Like I think um, at this point in time with like internet cloud-based technology providers, you really only need kind of directional alignment on your team and a champion to get started just at the very beginning. You know, for us, it's like get a credit card, get it set up, you know, have a few things, get your processes and procedures in the system. Um, and then from there, we typically see people grow to like more advanced technology adoption. So the days of requiring like IT purchasing, server administration resources, like those are those are long gone with a lot of uh, new technology that's out there. So from a technology perspective, um, the prerequisites are, are really more people oriented and team oriented. So from my perspective, having like a really good maintenance reliability management system in place is like critical. And so that includes like just getting your processes, policies, procedures, you know, then establishing what, when, who, how things are done. And the technology is really meant to, to automate that. So, from there, customers can then move through their journey of connecting assets, like you guys mentioned, in terms of remote monitoring, uh, either throughput or condition-based maintenance, and then ultimately a system where you have purchasing inventory and assets technology all integrated. So the way we think about it is, is really a, this journey and recognizing where you are as an organization on the journey. And from our perspective, a ton of the market's at the beginning. And the, the good part is, is that you could, you could just jump on pretty easily um, as you get further along, it requires, it's, it's really a big change management exercise in these organizations around um, adoption in the business case, like a lot of people have mentioned. Um, so that's how I see kind of the prerequisites is, is really kind of how you sit in terms of the, the digital journey method. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, I mean, for me, I think it depends on 
what like like I know this question just says technology in general, but I think that there's there's a little bit more to it than just that. Like I think there's different prerequisites to a CMMS versus you know some sort of AI IoT solution. But when you mention you know most people are paper based or Excel based, that doesn't shock me. I've seen it too. So, Joe, I don't know if you had any comments on this one. Like I know you've been around a bunch of plants, and what, what have you seen out there? I mean, it's more of the same. Right. You either are or you aren't at this point. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, but I, I think all of us have very barely scratched the surface when it comes to what the market is and what's yeah. available out there. Um, as far as helping people, you know, we see the top one, two to five, maybe 10% of the manufacturing companies that are out there. So 90% of them haven't even heard of us or don't know who we are or what we can do to help. And so you'll see a lot of them without a CMMS. Um, a lot of my clients currently, they either have one because they read it was a good thing, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't installed correctly. But if, if you can't even set up an asset hierarchy, how can you set up an IOT solution or, you know? Um, so when it comes to the fundamentals, it's getting all those things right. Um, you know, your criticality analysis, having the correct maintenance strategies and all that stuff to drive what solutions you need, when and where. Um, and so, like I said, in my opinion, there's a, the 99% and there's the 1%, you know, and then, you know, there's the 99% that there's levels to it, you know, <laughs> where, uh, you know, the top tier of the 99% are on the journey. Um, and they're further along than everybody else. But again, the, the fundamental things can't even build an asset hierarchy. You know, do you, do you have that set up correctly before you transfer over to IOT or do you have the skill sets necessary? Cause what's it's going to require now isn't necessarily somebody that can turn a wrench, but somebody that can run, you know, a PLC analyzer and, and other things, you know, so it's a different skill set that it's going to require as well. And I don't think, you know, with all the retirements and things that are coming up and um, I just, it's going to be a mess, I think. So trying to advance to that more technological side and less from a mechanical side, um, we're going to have some gaps there, you know. So uh, it's a big concern for me. Um, but again, if, if you can't do the, the elementary things, how can you advance to the, the more complex, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen it. I mean, like I obviously work primarily in that top 1%, especially, I mean, my full-time jobs have been really at multi-billion dollar industry companies. And even those ones, like there's a range of asset, like we're working on criticality right now. And, you know, they've been in business and they're making billions of dollars each year. And so there's a range there that there's still a lot of work to be done, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so next question, management is wanting the maintenance departments to do more with less people. Can you give us some suggestions on how they will overcome this in these times that we are faced with? Andy, do you want to kick us off on this question? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> this is obviously uh, runs throughout every client I go to that uh, has... Um, <clears throat> just alluded to the demographics of the workforce 
uh, they're pretty much my age or a little bit older so i'm mid 50s uh, we're all either exiting the business to go and do other things or coming up towards retirement um we've got a we've got a, a for me I, I always see pools of people that are really really up for the upskilling in the operator groups um they tend to have all the answers as well so when you start talking to these people uh, and i always whenever i go into a plant i want to talk to the people operating the machinery i'm not particularly interested in talking to the shop superintendent or the engineering manager i want to talk to the frontline guys um, and if you talk to them with the maintenance techs there it's amazing how they both have different views um, at the end of the day the operators do own this machinery so if you can instill some ownership from the operators and then upskill them they become an asset to the um, the reducing population of the maintenance techs um, and they become their their kind of right hand people to to um, be their eyes and ears and i was used to when I, as a as a practitioner when i used to carry a condition monitoring tools i was more interested in what the operators were saying than the uh, the gadgets i had i'm not really i'm not really a fan of people talking about the latest uh, vibration analyzer or gadget they have to me they're just tools and they accentuate our natural senses of sight or hearing or um, touch so thermography um and if we can give the operator some of the basics we can we can cut the uh, we can cut to the chase a little bit we've also i think we've got to we've we've got to in the in the space we're in we've got to become advocates for engaging with technology so i spend about a third of my time talking to and engaging with software uh, solution providers and people are looking to engage in industry four and they have their own specific realm they're working in be it sensor technology or uh, predictive software but they don't know people very well and this is so they're, they're almost they're trying to they're trying to solve problems that they don't understand and again going back to what the previous uh, I think, uh, joe said is um you've got to understand what the end goal is before you start applying the technology it's no good just applying technology for the sake of it so um the whole the hole that's going to be filled with the lack of uh the skills in the in the labor force and the lack of people so I, I i did a thing the other day about this demographic thing japan is the is, is showing the early uh, part of this demographic inversion of the triangle of people where we're going to end up with more um people over the age of 60 at the top of the triangle and less people at the bottom china have got this 421 syndrome where there's one working person um supporting two parents and four grandparents and this is not just you know um something for the the far east it's something in the western world with the baby boomers coming to the end of that generation the population is smaller there's just less people so technology is going to fill that hole that's my belief and then going back to what i said early on before we even started um, we have to go and um, be evangelizing about rcm so going into people and saying your strategy of uh, uh, firefighting and constantly 
break and fix is is incorrect um, and introduce them to reliability centered maintenance and again nine times out of ten nobody's heard of it i'll go speak to people um and get get to a, a proactive and predictive sphere rather than uh, you know forever uh, fixing the same things unfortunately it is a habit in industry that we reward people who fix things and again i always say to people when i go and speak to them there's there's nothing about fixing things in the uh, in the dictionary when you look at maintenance it's all about maintaining not fixing <laughs> adrian any thoughts on doing more with less yeah you know the first thing that came to my mind uh you know obviously there's going to be people out there who are going to be asked to step into roles that they may not be as comfortable with or you know maybe uh do work that they're not as com uh, comfortable or familiar with doing so the first thing i thought about was training uh, you know, hopefully at some point in time, they have received some good training that they can hopefully uh, fall back on or remember. Um, you know, Andy kind of talked about tribal knowledge, um, you know, being, uh, being able to capture the knowledge of, uh, we'll say, our more seasoned uh, workers that are out in our plants. Uh, hopefully there's been some programs in place for those people to uh, capture some of that knowledge from some of these people that are going to be leaving the workforce. Um, you know, especially now with all this going on, they may be leaving sooner rather than later. Um, and then the second thing I thought about was procedures, uh, you know, having good procedures in place that, you know, define the work, uh, define the roles, uh, and, you know, define how the work is to be done, what the expectations are. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of the plants as well as, you know, you, you, you guys know, uh, don't always have those good procedures in place. So, I think for a lot of plants, a lot of facilities, it's probably going to be a uh, rude awakening, uh, unfortunately, for a lot of them. Uh, but for those that do have those types of good procedures, good training programs, you know, good ways of capturing that tribal knowledge, I think those, those plants will be farther along than uh, their counterparts. Love it, love it, love it. Now, just on that training note, so just a shout out to your your employer ue systems you guys are offering a free compressed air leaks course that people can check out and then also if you want to check out another free course if you register and type rob's reliability project in the comments box you'll get another one for free so skill up right now it's time <laughs> yeah we've had, we've had a tremendous response from that uh a free compressed air online uh, course so uh yeah sign up so I, I got a question here in the chat. Um, is the problem with doing more with less partially a mindset of the company's value system, such as the bean counter mentality? Fred, do you want to do you want to give your take on why people want to do more with less? Well, I think you hit it on the head there, uh, Rob. It's uh, a salary costs money, and it takes time, and usually it's somebody that has to have specialized skill and or a, a lot of training to come up to speed to do what they're doing. So they're seen as an expense, and the maintenance tech is not in line to make the products that you're selling. They're just an, a support role for that. So I think whether it's quality or reliability or the maintenance teams, we're seen as secondary to the core production or whatever you're trying to make money on. And in all three of those areas and maintenance by far is you have to show that you have some value you add return to it and I, you've heard me talk about this rob many times is that 
if we're going to say implement a change, bring in some sensors and, and bring in that, or we want to use a vibration analysis tool or setup, or we want to just change the, the struct, you know, do an asset criticality analysis. It's going to take us some time to do it. All of those things have the potential to add a lot of value to an organization. And we as engineers are not particularly good at always articulating how, how does that relate to the business? And I think that's the practice we got to do. And so it, it definitely tied to connecting what you're proposing or what you're doing or what you even just accomplished to how does that make a difference to the bottom line or, or to whatever is important to the organization. Once you're seen as a, a value adding entity, then that discussion of more with less, now you're an investment opportunity, right? So if I give you a thousand dollars, I'll get 10,000 back. That's great. If, and if that's not clear and articulated and written down, it's invisible. And so you might actually be doing a lot of good things, but if nobody knows about it, that, that hard, it's hard to communicate your value unless you actually calculate it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I think, you know, that's the, you brought up two things there, Fred, that we've talked about a bunch, both you and I and on, on the podcast is just, you know, you have to calculate ROI. You have to talk about your wins at your organization. It's part of culture, but it's also, it's just part of, you know, being somebody that's seen as valuable, especially in these times now. Like if you, if you weren't doing it, you may be out of a job. And so it's, it's important. Now I did get a note in the, in the chat from Christy. So desk case is also offering a free half day lubrication training. So if you're listening and you're, you're on that, I'll, I'll throw that link into the podcast notes, but definitely check that out too. All righty. So the next question we got, where do you start at the beginning of remote monitoring journey in a large scale industry? Do you start on specific areas, specific lines, specific equipment? Because there are so many applications, how do you prove something works without spending a large amount of capital? James, I kind of wanted to get your take on this one first. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, as we kind of discussed earlier, assuming you're ready to go, right? So like assuming you can build an asset hierarchy, you got the systems in place to, to do something with the data. Like that's the, that's the first place I'll start. Uh, but assuming that's the case, the first thing that we do is like, don't try to boil the ocean. I think everybody will say that. I'm pretty sure that we'll see lots of head nods around that. So I think it's pretty universal to start small, show success, and then build from there. You know, it's the right thing to do from a spend perspective, building the ROI, showing the ROI, all, all those types of things. So starting small is also really good, really important. Also, it helps build the confidence of the organization and as well as advocates that you're going to need within the organization. Um, because when you start thinking about going from you know, the very beginning of the remote monitoring journey to something larger scale, you're going to need other people in the organization, whether that's IT, um, finance, executive, whatever it is. So the question is really where, where do you start? And so what we've seen work um, and what we work with our customers on is starting with the criticality of the asset. So a critical asset with no good way of like maintaining it to date is, is an awesome place to start if you, if you have something that jumps out at you. You know, something that you've traditionally been reactive with. Um, the key thing there though is knowing what you want to measure and what those trigger points are because you don't want to bring in too many data points that you either won't use or you don't need. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how we think about just the very beginning. Um, also, it's important to think about a condition-based monitoring um, is, could be also throughput maintenance. 
And as a reliability engineer, you know, the, as a first step, just getting to throughput maintenance could be a massive um, upgrade on just your time-based PMs. And so a lot of places where our customers start is just on throughput as like a really valuable place to start that doesn't require lots of data points um, where it doesn't get complicated and doesn't require a lot of investment from the organization, but can create a ton of value um, versus just regular time-based PMs. So I think those are the places when we see with our customers, that's, that's where good starting points are. Yeah, I agree. Joe, do you have anything to add? Kind of hard, I think, James. Answered <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I agree with James. Uh, when it comes to starting something, um, there's one of two scenarios, right? One is always start with critical equipment, or two, if you're forced to do small scale, then convince them to do a pilot, maybe on a single line. Um, so whatever line has the worst actors or adds the most value to the organization, um, any of those types of things, uh, you could start with the pilot. Um, but again, it depends on your situation. You know, did you get a budget approved for it? Can you roll it out on all the critical assets? You know, um, there's a lot of variables there as far as where to start and, um, and how you can start um, based on, again, you know, what, what's your budget? <laughs> right. And so some, some large scale companies, I mean, they say they're a large scale company, so they might have a lot of capital to be able to invest and, and do all of their critical assets. And then some, um, where others, you might be trying to do this strictly out of your maintenance budget. So it might be wise to start a pilot or maybe it's on a group of assets together. Um, for example, uh, if you have a bunch of blowers, and uh, they're all sitting together, you know, in a certain area. It's easy to set things up like that. So, um, again, it kind of depends on the industry, the facility, and the budget. Um, but definitely, uh, I would start on critical assets for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll echo a few things that you mentioned there, Joe. I do definitely agree. Critical assets. I do also like, and I also recommend you know, multiple of the same asset. So like you mentioned blowers, but if you have like redundant pumps, those types of things, if you have the same equipment, basically your rule set, all that stuff, whether you're AI or you're not, it all applies across the board. So start with those. I also like to kind of echo a little bit about what Andy said. If you've done an RCM or an FMEA on the assets, it's useful because it'll help you understand what sensors you need. A lot of people, they don't understand it that far, right? So if you've never done an FMEA, you're just slapping every sensor that you can find on your equipment. You don't know whether that data is useful and you don't also know like what failure mode are you trying to detect or which ones are you missing with the stuff that, with the sensors you don't have. And so those are some important points to just consider on that one. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So we got a we got a comment in the chat. Don't forget spare parts availability or difficulties behind rebuildable spares. So yeah, so that's in my opinion that's part of criticality I think as well, but it's definitely something to consider is if you can't get spare parts, you're going to have to be a little bit better on your maintenance program. Next question, how can you manage obsolescence? So this one this one's a good question. Fred, you want to kick us off on your thoughts? Uh, 
well, the worst way to manage it is wait till it's obsolete or your, your <laughs> suppliers say, no, we don't make those parts anymore. And then in your lines down, right? That, that's a tactic and it's commonly used, unfortunately. Um, the obsolescence management starts when you buy the product, the, the equipment, right? It's when you design the line. That's really when it starts. Nobody wants to talk about that. Later, though, you run into this challenge. Um, I did uh, here in the community I live in, we, have, we run our own water treatment plant. And we had this 40-year-old pump that was leaking and the wobbling. You didn't need a motion amplification camera to see this thing, how bad it was, and bolts were pulling on. It was just... And that wasn't the oldest, most evil-looking piece of equipment in the in the plant. And they've been keeping this thing running with bailing wire for years. And it failed, right? Of course, this pump failed. So that shuts down our water supply for a community. And so they run off to the Central Valley here in California and basically pay 3x the cost of the replacement part, which is refurbished old unit, and put it in. And even that, was still a hard sell to say, we need to replace this thing. We need to actually buy something that's new. And the, the challenge we had was the rest of the team, the uh, board that sits on this team, they're not engineers. They don't, they don't have experience with this. You know, hey, it's working today, why fix it? And it's 25 years old. It's eight, you know, we have pipes in the ground and valves that they haven't exercised in 15, 20 years. Some, they don't even know where they are and it's, no, you have to plan this ahead. Yes, this is going to cost us a lot of money. Let's start saving money for it now. Let's start shopping. Let's not wait until it's an emergency and then we pay top dollar or all these other workarounds. So the, that's one scenario is avoid the reaction piece of it and start the obsolescence planning right when you get the equipment and then realize you're going to face the battle when it's exhausted its useful life you're gonna face this thing, well, you guys maintained it so well, we're gonna keep it running for another 20 years. And we'll spend the money that we've been saving for a replacement part somewhere else because it's working today, right? And the worst thing you can do is two years later, come back and say, well, I told you so, which <laughs> you might be having to bite your tongue at that point. So that's, that's my take on that one. Andy, any thoughts on obsolescence? Yeah, well, uh, I can agree with that. Um, my first thoughts were, uh, Having work on, I do work on criticality quite often. Is um, when when I mention obsolescence to the team that's doing the procurement for a, a new project, and it's mainly new projects I work on. Uh, they look at me completely bizarrely. Why would I even want to think about maintenance or obsolescence of parts and longevity when they haven't even built the asset? Um, but it's it's the best place to start is at the bill of materials when they're building that. And to uh, get, it's really, really hard sometimes to even get a bill of materials out of these people. Um, then it's, it's a little bit like when you look at how you're going to base your maintenance strategy. So maintenance strategies go, well, I just do nothing and I just react. So that's an obsolescent strategy. So in that case, I would say that equals get an eBay account, which I've, you know, I've got clients to do that. They go looking for Alan Bradley stuff all over eBay. Um, if you've got, you know, um, 20, 30 year old plant that you're running and, um, it's a risk, then you should have a strategy in for obsolescence that says, right, how do we re-engineer or redesign this for a future 
purpose. So um, large large companies do do that, but very, very few other companies do that. In fact, an automotive company at the moment, they have a really critical panel that um, has been there over 30 years and nobody dare touch it. And the guy that used to be the the systems guy for it is now retired and they call him in to come and have a look. And I say, well, this is mad because this guy uh, is ill or has a, a traffic accident. Um, you, you're not going to make any cars. Um, and it's all the, the other thing. I think the really good middle ground is make some really good relationships with rebuilders and re remanufacturers. So go and get the best motor rebuilder in your area is important. So don't go and get one that's like, you know, we're, we're in the UK, so I'm not going to go and get one that's based in Switzerland or Italy. Uh, you know, go and get one within an hour's drive uh, and build a really tight relationship with them. Um, that's very important within the food sector where you're, you are 24-7 and you've got 14 to 20-day runs and you can't afford to have, you know, uh, a major outage. So, um, yeah, so there's that to build it in from the outset when you're doing the criticality part. Um, probably the middle ground, the most, the, the bit that most people should do, I think, is build those third-party relationships with people that supply and rebuild. In the UK, I don't know whether in the US, but I assume they've got them, there are actually companies now that are obsolescent-based suppliers. So there's there's one in the UK, and they all that they do, they don't do normal inventory, they do obsolescence. So if you want Alan, Alan Bradley that's 15 years old, you go to this one company, and they have that. What they've done is they've they've cannibalised all these old panels, and they've seen a business opportunity, and they've they've stockpiled obsolescent equipment equipment and they've rebuilt it um so there is that way out as well so there's a couple of companies in the uk that you can go to for uh out-of-date equipment oh and um, yeah i've seen it a lot actually in my in my current role with some of the electrical stuff as well like we're looking at some of the vfds that are that are out there that are fairly old and they're you know they're running out of time for spare parts and so we're trying to figure out some ways to get going so it's good now i guess i kind of want to just riff off something you said andy you were talking about bill materials and james like you you have a lot of customers that have cmms and like how, do you have any like ballpark ideas of like how many of them have a bill materials in their system how many of them have an asset hierarchy that like makes sense not just just like some random export and like do how many of them have a criticality that they put into the CMMS? Yeah. So I think um, what you see is level of maturity of customers and um, I'll go through your examples, kind of go via time, right? So the first thing that we work on with our customers, everybody that we get engaged with, it's asset hierarchy. It's like the first place. So if you got a CMMS from us, the first place that we engage with you is just on the asset hierarchy. Um, and so that's, that's really critical. So I would say like, if you're going to get serious about, you know, getting in some software, that's, that's the first place you look. So, and then it basically dwindles from there, depending on the organizational capacity and, and what they have. So, um, you know, spare parts inventory or bill of materials, you know, kind of drops off from there. Um, when customers start integrating with their ERP to manage purchasing workflows, 
Um, then it goes through the roof, right? 100% of customers would have that. So that's a big part of it when they start wanting to do integrated purchasing workflows. Um, and so that's, it's really just kind of, I'll go back to the journey statement, but like if you're starting up pen and paper, we start you with the asset hierarchy. Um, and I would say, like I said at the beginning, 80% of the market is still right there. So they're working on like, you know, get me off of reactive onto some PM schedule. Like that's where we start with a lot of companies. And then, um, and then over like a two to three year period, we get them to integrated workflow, integrated purchasing workflows. Maybe we'll get them to condition-based stuff with an IOT through a partner. Um, but that journey does, does take, you know, I would say the better part of two years to get to the next kind of meaningful stages beyond just asset hierarchy and, and, a, and, a, and a PM schedule that's, that's, you know, digital, not written down on a piece of paper. <laughs> So we kind of, the last question I want to, I want to give out is we got this question, online resources to learn reliability fundamentals. Now we did mention, you know, UE systems has, is offering at least one free course of the compressed air leaks. And then also if you sign up and use the promo code Rob's reliability project, you can get another free course. We also touched on desk case has a free half day lube training. Fred, you do a ton on the online training side. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you got going on? Well, Rob, your podcast and your article <laughs> series. I mean, it's obviously the place to start. Uh, I, I don't know how this person registered for the webinar to ask that question when it's like, literally, it's like, how much more do I have to do here? <laughs> that's right. No, the, I'm already um, burnt out, man. Like, I'm, I got nothing left. Well, we want some. We want this as webinars. The series has got to continue, definitely. <laughs> but I, I think, I mean, there are so many resources out there, and more and more people. I think Eridicio is is upping their webinars to more frequent, and and that's just one of many I've heard of that are. I think UAE's, UAE, uh, uh, UAE Systems is 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 doing it too. There's there's people are offering their courses for free as a great way to demo that they've got material online. The, the ones I'm more cautious about recommending are the ones that generally did a live course and now just have take a tape of that and put it online. It's not the same as an online course. It's, there's, there's differences to that. And, and, and the transfer of knowledge is much more difficult if you just tape somebody giving a lecture in a classroom, for example. There's, there's this really cool old fashioned way to learn things, uh, two ways actually. Uh, one of them is the library, right? And a lot of that's online these days. What is that? Yeah, you know, remember those? The old, you know, you go in and there's books, card catalogs and stuff like that. There's a a lot of knowledge written down and it's been out there for years. Just read a book is a great (laughs) way to get started. Um, If you want it trunked down in more discrete pieces, blogs, uh, on Ascendo Reliability, we carry, I think, on the order of 20 different blog series, Rob's included. And there's a, a listing of the top 50 blogs uh, in the reliability and maintenance world. And there's, you could spend months going through all the material that's on those and get to know individual contributors like Joe Anderson. You've got a great set of webinars and podcasts and, and blogs. There's a lot of information out there to to take in in whatever form you want. Um, I'm seeing a real upsurge in podcasts uh, is in our field. When I first started speaking of reliability, 
there weren't any other, there was one other podcast that had discontinued about a year before I got started. And it was the only one out there. Now there's, I'd say on the order of 10 or 15 of them. And so depending on which niche or what industry or uh, what interest you have, whether statistics or maintenance practices, there's probably a podcast on it. And if not, it's a great time to start one. We, we got all this technology now. Now you can record your opinions. Um, there are courses uh, that are quickly replacing conferences. I think, Rob, this what you're doing here is a phenomenal way to help people stay in touch and to realize that they're not alone, even though we're all alone <laughs> to a large degree. Uh, even when we're at work as a reliability engineer, we're usually a minority. We're, we're one of many other disciplines, but usually just in few numbers. Uh, having these forums and workshops and, and Rob, you used, you know, when you could, you would get together in Edmonton at a, a local pizza place and have 10 people around the table and just talk shop. It's, this format is a great way to replace that and it gives you a lot larger reach. Um, There's just no beer here. Well, you can fix that, you know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, it's different. It really is different. It's a surrogate for what we would like to really do. Um, I don't think we have to wait for professional organizations and professional societies or, or formal classrooms or large conferences to allow us to talk to each other. And I think we have the technology today as Rob, you're demonstrating to, to do that and keeps the education discussions going. And if you don't see what you want out there, start it and get it in touch with, you know, Rob or I and, and others on this panel. We'd all probably be more than happy to help you get the word out about what, you, what initiative you're taking, and how you want to connect people. So um, I think the bottom line is listen to a podcast, read a book. Would <laughs> 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 be the way to get started. Yeah. And, and I mean, on that note, right. So I know we'll, we'll just do plugs around the table and I know each one of you or most of you have your own content that you put out. So we'll just go around the table here. Give us anything you want to plug. Adrian, do you want to start off? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for the, the plugs already. We appreciate it. We, uh, you know, I've been trying to tell our team that now's not the time to be invisible. So we've been trying to make ourselves known, um, you know, through social media, but yeah, on our website, you know, just uesystems.com and we've got a tremendous amount of resources that are available at no cost. We've got software tutorials, you know, product tutorials. Uh, we've got webinars uh, archived on various maintenance and reliability topics and all of that is at no cost. So uh, yeah, just go to uesystems.com and you'll find all that under the, uh, the training tab. Awesome. Awesome. Great stuff. Andy, anything to plug? Yeah, well, um, I always share a lot of stuff on my website at Uptime Consultant. Uh, sometimes got some stick from that from other people in the industry saying, "What are you doing that for?" <laughs> I say, "Well, um, I always have this thing of the three finites of time, money, and resource. And uh, as you get older, you know that the time one is a real big finite. So I'm I'm conscious of trying to get as much stuff out as I can uh, to share." Uh, and then the other thing I did about a year ago is I started playing with a, an online platform run by, um, it's powered by Thinkific. And Thinkific are the first, I've been looking for a couple of years, but they're the first platform that had got um, a front end so you could have a web page uh, that links to multiple courses. 
you could pick a paid version. I picked started with this unpaid version. So I've got three free courses, um, all about an hour long. Um, and I've, as, uh, as Fred alluded to, I was trying to think of what can I find in a book or on a website or in a, um, but I probably could find it in a blog if I searched. And it's that, um, it's those things that we learn as reliability engineers that we, 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 we learn by experience, but then we've got no way of really passing it on unless we mentor somebody and we put that information into them. So I thought, well, what about all the things that I learned? I, I took obviously books and learned a lot through my background as a, a condition monitoring engineer and then uh, research reliability. Uh, and then there was all these anecdotes and things that happened to me along the way. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do then. So mine's based on, I always say this, you won't find this in books. And if you don't agree with it, it's because you probably haven't experienced it. And if you don't agree with it, that's good. So that, that starts a conversation and that's, uh, that's what we need to do. We need to get a real good conversation moving because reliability isn't, shouldn't be in status. We should be moving forever towards a better a better outcome for our client or our plants. Um, so yeah, uh, so that, that one's called uh, uh, Uptime Consultant Academy and it's got a uh, call to action button on the front page of Uptime Consultant. So uh, quite a lot of people are going into that. I've got some good feedback. I've got the, the in fact, you can see from uh, part one to part two to part three, I've got better equipment and my uh, presentation skills have upped a little bit. Uh, so the first one was really bad. Um, I just I tell, I tell people because... never to, to listen to the first podcast that I do. So, so we, yeah, all, we well, all get better. <laughs> well, it takes it. I mean, it takes you about um, a week of listening to yourself before you get used to that strange voice. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, as Fred said, there's, there's tons of information and books out there um, and, and in different categories. So, um, and again, what the way I, leverage what I do with clients is I say, well, look, I'm not a vibration specialist. I'm a level one, or I'm not a, an ultrasound specialist. I'm a, a level one, uh, taking know, a four day I'm level one. Ultrasound specialist on the call. Yeah. But what you do is then you say, <laughs> well, the best, what the, you say, well, the best place to go is I point people towards Mobus Institute for vibration or UE systems for uh, ultrasound. So it, all that does that, that, uh, it provides a service to my client that says, well, it cuts out the chase for them. They, they get, um, you know, they shorten the time to them getting the information. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. And that's uptime for, for non UK people. It's uptime consultant.co.uk. Just, just an FYI. Yeah. yeah uk. Yeah. James, any plugs for you, for us? Yeah. Th thanks, Rob. I'll, I'll be short and sweet here. Um, you know, one of the things that we're um, seeing in, especially in these times of like COVID-19 crisis is that the community wants to come together. So, you know, I, I certainly am not even close to being um, as smart as everybody else on this line around industry and use cases, et cetera. So our, our job is to bring together our customers and community and have them share, right? Like we find like that's when the most amount of learning is happening and you're seeing it on a, on a call today. So we've created a resource hub to centralize all of our content programming um, and a lot of customer uh, feedback. So we're doing customer webinars explaining how they're managing remote, et cetera. So there's lots of great stuff on 
fixsoftware.com and it's all in our all in our resource hub and the only other thing i like to plug rob is uh community is doing a fantastic job and um for those that are unaware of fix or might be hearing about us for the first time um we're deep into uh, sustainability and, and fundamentally we believe that you know through the work that we're all doing and maintenance and reliability is affecting a, a, a more sustainable world and that's something that we're working on deeply and so look for more stuff from from us uh in the coming months month on that so we're all part of it and we hope to shine a spotlight on it love it really appreciate it james and yeah if there's anything you want help my help on with with respect to helping your customers or that type of thing let me know absolutely happy to do that thanks rob fred you you kind of got plugs already but go ahead well thanks yeah uh, well the easiest url to remember is reliability.fm and it'll take you to a page that lists uh, i think we have seven different podcasts and uh, that's a good place to start uh, or ascendoreliability.com where we have the podcasts, webinars, articles. We just crossed 1,800 individual blog articles from about 20, 25 different contributors. And thanks, some of the, many of the folks on the panel are, are contributors. It's, it's a site that we try to keep non-denominational, right? There's no banner ads. We're not plugging our own products. Uh, we're trying to share the best of knowledge that we can find from many, many different voices. And uh, it's free to get vast majority of the content. It's free to be a member of the site and get on our email list, all that kind of stuff. And so it's uh, a platform for people that want to get the word out and share their knowledge um, and, because it creates a ready-made audience and vice versa. It's the place to go if you want to learn about libel analysis, for example, or RCM's definition or whatever. It's got, a, it's getting a little bit big. It's getting harder and harder to manage. <laughs> so we're working on that. <laughs> but it's uh, uh, reliability.fm is one URL and the other one is ascendoreliability.com. Absolutely. Joe, anything to plug? Yeah, a couple things very quick. Uh, again, a lot of content that Fred has we've contributed to. So you'll see our stuff on there. Um, in a week and a half, I'm doing a webinar with UE Systems. Uh, so you can sign up for that. Uh, we're doing it on uh, effectiveness versus efficiency and trying not to make the whole world mad at me about my opinion on that. But uh, we'll see how it goes, man. And then uh, reliability. The box. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we all have an opinion <laughs> these days, right? Um, and reliabilityx.com. We have all of our resources there, uh, plus our captain on reliability, um, in which we partner with plant services um, and have a monthly column in that. So it's more of a sarcasm on the industry. Um, it's our way of venting a little bit, I think. Uh, but <laughs> take a look at that. And uh, yeah, that's about it for me. Awesome. Awesome stuff. I mean, I do it in meme form. So, so, yeah. you know, Captain Unreliability is good too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for me, I mean, obviously, I got a webinar, another one on Monday, mindset, uncertainty, dealing with the pandemic, all that stuff we're going to touch on with my mindset coach, Susan Hobson. So if you haven't registered for that one, just go to my LinkedIn or I don't know, maybe you can chat me your email or something and I'll get you registered. Um, obviously, follow Rob's Reliability Project, subscribe to the podcast, follow it on LinkedIn. And yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks to all the guests for contributing their expert opinions on it. And we're going to keep doing these as long as I'm home. So 
Well, we don't know how long that's going to be. So we'll see. We'll see you next time. Great stuff, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, great. Appreciate it, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Rob. Cheers, Rob.